invite you to turn into the Gospel of John, and we're going to finish out this chapter, chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we'll look at this last item that is brought up here. Jesus is going to talk about the promise that he made to prepare a place for you. That is for his disciples, not for everyone, but to those that are in Christ and following him. In his Father's house are many rooms, and he'll prepare a place for you. That's a promise. But John here in chapter 13, John the Apostle, closes this out with a mention of Peter's denial of the Lord. Now the details of this denial are not going to actually take place in, in the recorded narrative until chapter 18. And so it causes me to stop and think, well, why mention it now? And do we just preach this again once we get to chapter 18? What's going on? So thought through this, the disciples remember the setting here in chapter 13. They've just experienced the practical love of Jesus Christ for them as they've gathered around. He's preparing them before he dies on the cross. He washes their feet, all of them. And John notes Peter's reaction to Jesus doing this humble service of humiliation, demonstrating his love for them and encouraging them to love one another as he has loved them. Peter's reaction, do you remember in verse 8, his reaction to Christ was, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus, Peter seemed to have a foot-shaped mouth. He didn't always quite get what was going on. And Jesus responds to him, well, if I don't wash you, then you'd have no share with me. So Simon Peter reacts over the top, verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, all of me. He's all in. And of course, Jesus also does this to demonstrate a spiritual truth. And he says, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet. That is the, the sin that you would pick up in the walk of this earthly life. But you're completely clean on the inside. Except there was one who was not. Not every one of you. That would be the one who would betray Christ and would be sent out. Peter, who was all in, symbolized his fidelity with Jesus Christ. He often made a, statements like that that were a bit impulsive. It demonstrates really his passion for Christ, though it might have been misguided at times. He spoke up and could be rightfully criticized, but he was also really communicating what everyone else felt. He just was a little bit more bold. The others thought the same kinds of things and wanted to say as such, but it is Peter who would stand up and often say and often act in ways in which others felt. He was very bold. Chapter 18, I'll read it for you. This really gives the fuller detail of what's 
Jesus mentions here, uh, or John mentions about uh, Peter, and Jesus says, in verse 10 of chapter 18, Simon Peter, this is, they're about ready to arrest Jesus in chapter 18, he takes a sword and draws it, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has for me? Bold, he stepped forward. He thought he was doing the right thing, but he was not. And Jesus told him to put away his sword. This is the character of Peter. And Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's brash. He knows that he's enthusiastic. But Jesus knows what's ahead. He's omniscient. He's God. This courageous and strong Peter will need to learn a few lessons as he follows Christ. The devotion Peter has for Jesus is commendable. It's commendable to have courage. It's commendable to have passion, great boldness. But all of that needs to be tempered to some degree. And tempered by the truth. When I say temper, yeah, I'm using that as an illustration. You know what the idea of tempering is. Where you make some metal harder, stronger, if you will, should I say, by actually decreasing its hardness. You make it stronger because you decrease its hardness. This reduction in hardness is normally accomplished by intense heat. It increases the flexibility of the metal, decreasing its brittleness, its brokenness. That's the idea of what's going on here with Peter. He's not quite ready for prime time. Neither are the other disciples. They have a few more lessons to learn. They've been with Jesus for three years, and this is the defining moment. Peter and the disciples understand to some degree the very hard and difficult truths about Jesus which affect how they act. But at the same token, they are not to overreact. Jesus sent his disciples out, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 10. He said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. God's people are to be as Paul would say, blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Fitting then, fitting now. Be blameless and innocent children of God in this crooked and wicked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2, 15. A disciple of Jesus is to walk in wisdom. And wisdom is this practical exercise, how you act in relationship to the knowledge of God that you have. In our text here in chapter 13 of John, Jesus provides some instruction right here at the very end that's recorded for us. It's not throwaway. Yeah, he's going to expound later on on what's going on with Peter 
in chapter 18, but this right here is some practical wisdom for his disciples before he goes and is crucified on the cross. The statements that Jesus makes in this text really are also prophetic, all of them. That is, he's telling beforehand what is going to happen. Specific instructions are given to Peter. Now, in our text, I wanted us to just look at it in this way. Verses 33, 36 through 38. I'm going to skip 34 through 35 in, in reading this text. Not because that's not important. We spent roughly two weeks on that. That's the new commandment, to love one another as Christ loves. But I'm going to pull that out so that you wouldn't lose the train of thought here. Because as John the Apostle records, he throws that in there. And that is not what we'll focus on today. Today we're going to focus on this instruction to the disciples and Peter specifically. So I'll read it and it'll flow. You'll see what I'm saying a little bit more clearly. So let's begin at verse 33 and just read this section. Little children, Jesus says... Yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let us pray. Father, we desire to learn from your word that we might be tempered in truth. Remove whatever remains brittle and hard, cause us to be flexible and strong, to be light in a wicked, crooked, and twisted generation. May the sharpness of your truth cut to the joints and marrow of the soul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, even this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I look through here, remember, we're looking at verse 33, 36, 37, and 38. If you want to organize it in your thoughts, these three lessons that are given to his disciples as he closes out this chapter, they are really prophecies, statements of what will happen in the very near future. Notice verse 33. Jesus speaks about his death. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 36. He speaks about the disciples' martyrdom. You will follow afterwards. And we'll do the same thing. They will die. And then verse 38. It specifically addresses Peter's denial who... It isn't just him. Certainly he does that. But he also represents 
the rest of the disciples who were not quite ready for prime time, and it may be characteristic of us too, even this day. All three statements, his death, the martyrdom, and the denial, all of this is going to happen. It hasn't happened. It will happen. These are future events. Jesus demonstrates here his omniscience as God and the fact that all of them were fulfilled precisely as he said is another indication of the veracity of his word. Let's look at the first one where Jesus speaks about his death. He says, where I am going, you you cannot come. He begins by verse 33 saying, little children. This is a literal rendering of the Greek word here. It means small child. Well, they're not small child children. They're grown men. So in the use of language, as we might use it, this is used in affectionate address to his beloved disciples who he has gathered around this communion table one last time to kind of give them a hug, if you will, like a father would, sending his children off to battle. It's a, it's a beloved, affectionate address. Jesus, as this chapter opens, says he loved them to the very end. That is, to the uttermost and to the end of their days. There was never a single day that they were without the love of Christ. And should I say this, beloved, too, perhaps this will help your heart. There is never a day for anyone who is in Christ that you are not absolutely loved by his faithful mercy and his grace and his steadfastness. We love you to the end. You will meet someone who will break their covenant with you of love, but Christ never will. Even if you are unfaithful, he remains faithful. To what? To his name. To his promise. Know who he is. He, he loved them to the very end. And so he gathers them around as, as little children. He knows what is ahead. Jesus knows what's coming next. As the prophets of old said in Isaiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised. Why, it looked so awful, you would hide your face. There's a movie out called The Passion of Christ. Have you seen it? I own it. It was given to me. I've never watched it. It's not that I'm not interested in it. I can't bring myself to see it. I don't want to see that level of shame and despising. And if you have, that's no, nothing on you. It's just, I just, I just have a hard time. I've always had a hard time. I couldn't even see the commercials with it where they're, where they're driving nails into his wrists. But this is what Christ knew was coming about to where you couldn't even look at that bloody mess on the cross. It was awful. Any pictures that you see hanging up in church, those are all sanitized for our consumption. It was awful. And if you looked at it, you would look away. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet 
we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus understood this. He knew about it. The prophets of old were told about it, and here Jesus is now anticipating this agony, and we'll read about him suffering in anticipation of it in the garden. But he also here in our text, I think he anticipates the agony of his disciples who would follow after him. How difficult it would be for them. And he's gathering them around his little children and saying, I know you will be in great suffering to see me suffer like this. So he gives them some comfort. They will suffer loss as well. There will be much sorrow, many tears, much anguish, much anxiety. Although the outcome is certain, the outcome has been prophesied, God is sovereign, and yet his people will suffer. And so softly and tenderly, Jesus calls his own beloved disciples as a father, gathers his children before a long and difficult journey. The preacher of Hebrews would put it this way, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but as one who in every respect was tempted, that is tested by what went on, yet without sin. That is the distinction. Never, never, never a sin. Never a doubt in the sense of lack of faith. He trusted, but it still suffered and it still hurt. It's not that Jesus will just suffer. If you'll notice our text, he says that he's going to be gone. He's going to leave. And if you've ever left a loved one because perhaps you needed to do something or go somewhere and it was going to be a long time, that would be a hard thing to do. He would leave. And he says here in our text, in verse 33, Well, just as I, um, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, and now I'm saying to you, where I'm going, you, you cannot come. He told the Jews that in chapter 8 and verse 21, if you remember. To the Jews, he said, I'm going away and you cannot come. You speaking to those that had rejected him, you will die in your sin. So, so why is he saying the same thing now to his beloved, his disciples, who he's gathered together like a father with his children? The distinction there is the Jews were in rebellion against Christ, and they couldn't come because they were in rebellion. To his disciples here, they can't come to the cross because Jesus must bear it alone. He has a mission for them and their mission is not to atone for sin. It will be Christ and Christ alone. And in great agony they will see him suffer and die alone. The old covenant the high priest picturing this very time would go into the holy place once a year, into the most holy. He would go in there alone. He'd take blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, pleading for God's mercy as the blood covers 
their sin. This blood that was sprinkled year to year was only symbolic of what was to come. Would you like to see it? We have time. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is a great book. I do hope to preach it here at some point. Because it exalts Christ. And I look at it as a lengthy sermon. Perhaps by Apostle Paul. But we'll discuss that later. I'll try to be brief haha, on this. But Paul, by the way, preached so long they, they died. It, what, he really killed his audience. But anyway, he had the ability to raise them from the dead. I don't, so I'll cut mine short. In any case, Hebrews 9, look at 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come. See, all of that pointed to this day, pointed to Jesus Christ. The high priest who is to come through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, and that not of this creation. All of that, what before, all that you read in the Old Testament, all that is to picture this. It is to picture Christ, who enters, verse 12, once for all into the holy place. Before, it was year after year after year after year. Now it will be once. Once for all, Christ goes into the holy place. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, in other words, it does so by picturing this. How much, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is what Christ is going to do. He knows this ahead of time. And his disciples are not part of this. He will do this alone. You do not share in the redemption of your soul. You do not share in the accomplishment of the covering of your sin. There is nothing that you can add to this process other than more sin that must be covered. So Christ must do it and do it alone. And he does it in absolute perfection by himself. Look at chapter 10 and jump down to verse 11. 10, 11. I'm just... Touching some highlights here. And every priest stands at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. This Old Testament covering that was done didn't cover sin. It pointed to one who would cover sin. That's all. It was representative of it. It was symbolic of it. It was to draw their attention to it. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. That is, it is accomplished. Where is Jesus right now? 
He's seated at the right hand of God. It is finished. It is done. There is nothing you can do to contribute to it. It is completed. Including all the enemies that would curse him. They are all defeated. And that's what this next verse says. And waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, Psalm 2. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. For by this one single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is, those that are in Christ who are being set apart for God. Everyone else will be trampled under his feet. Jesus says, yet a little while I'm with you. He's going to taste death for everyone who will have their sin covered. He does this alone. And the disciples are not going to participate in that. They couldn't come now. They are called instead to do something else. They are called to pick up their cross and follow Christ. It will end in their execution. Not now, but when it is time. Verse 36 of chapter 13. Simon, Peter, not really getting the grasp of all that Christ is saying. And remember, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of an inspired text. We know the answers to it, but he didn't. He's there in real time. And kind of speaking up brashly and boldly as his character might be, <clears throat> he says, well, Lord, where are you going? Verse 36. And Jesus says, you can't follow me now. To me, it's interesting that they would constantly ask him, where are you going? <laughs> he spent three years teaching them where he was going. <laughs> it was no mystery. He constantly said that. But I guess sometimes you just hear it and you hear it, but you think differently or have different ideas of what it might look like along the way. And I think that's their perspective. Jesus had constantly told them, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. John doesn't record every incident, but there are many. I'll just run through them. You can look at them, or I'll not get all of them, but I'll mention a couple. Just throughout the text. In verse chapter 3, verse 14, that illustration of the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness by Moses. In John 3, 14, it says, So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up is a euphemism for hanging on a cross as they lift you up. That's what it means in context. 8.28 of John. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He. That is, He is Yahweh. He is God. 12.32 of John. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all kinds of men to myself. 1234. The crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. 
How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? That is, they expected the Son of Man, that is the Christ, that is the Messiah, that is Jesus, if you're, if you're him. How are you going to be lifted up? That is, how are you going to die and still remain forever? And then they say, who is this Son of Man? <laughs> this is God incarnate. That's how he can both die and live forever. Verse 36, so Jesus says, you, you can't go where I'm going. They're, they're, well, where are you going? You know where I'm going. You really know what I'm doing, thinking about it. Maybe they put it out of their mind. I don't know. But he says in verse 36, he says, but, but you will follow afterwards. Hindsight, of course, is, is twenty twenty. It's now they can't follow, right now, at this time, but they will follow. Do you notice that? But you will follow afterwards. Now, the present in which they existed there, it was not time for them to die. They had a mission. They had a purpose that God wanted them around. He could have taken them, could have taken them all, been done with it. But God will call many sons and daughters to glory. And when the fullness of that number is in, then it will be done. And for all of those that are in Christ, you have a mission too to participate in it until he's done. And it isn't on your timetable, it's on his These disciples were left here not to be martyred with Christ on that day because they were charged to go to the Jew first and then also to the Greek and teach them all the things that Christ has spent three years teaching them and then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is their great commission. And so the disciples are called to make disciples so that the gospel would progress through time and go out to the nations to teach Christ and see many people united to Christ sanctified perfectly through his blood. And Christ has promised that he will build his church. And he will build it as he sees fit. If you're in Christ, you serve at the pleasure of Christ. When he's done with your mission, he'll call you home. It's that simple. But for now, he calls those that are in Christ to, to be a faithful servant. To fulfill what he has asked. And to some, it may be to be asked... Great in many things. Others, just a little. These disciples, they, they did follow Christ. They did pick up their cross. And all of them followed in his footsteps to death save one. The Christianity Today, Ken Curtis notes how, summarizes really how the apostles here died. 
Peter and Paul, and by the way, don't get hung up on the, the number of them. The 12 is just a statement about these insiders. Obviously, Judas was not a real follower, so he was cast out. Paul says he's an apostle that was born late in time. It was a unique commissioning by Christ. And then the group of disciples appointed Matthias later on. All of them are the apostles. Peter and Paul were both martyred in Rome around 66 AD under the persecution of Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down at his request since he didn't feel he was worthy to die in the same manner of the Lord. That's this one that Jesus is speaking to saying, you're not coming now, but you will follow afterwards. I think that was in his mind when they went to hang him on the hang him on the cross. Andrew went to this is this is just a summary of church history of what we know. Andrew went to the land that we now know of as Soviet Union or actually it's um Russia area. Christians there claim him to be the first to bring the gospel to the land he preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, where he's said to have also been crucified. Thomas, probably the most active in the east of Syria, tradition as in preaching in East India, and the ancient uh, Marthoma Christians revere him as their founder. They claim that he died there when pierced through with spears of four soldiers. Philip, had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and then in Asia Minor where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul. In retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and writer of the Gospel of Matthew, by the way, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. And some of the oldest reports say he was um, not martyred, but uh, most reliable sources say that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew had widespread missionary travels attributed to him by tradition to India with Thomas, and back to Armenia, and also to Ethiopia, southern Arabia. There's various accounts of how he met his death. The best we can tell, he did die as a martyr for the gospel. James, the son of Alphaeus, one of at least three James referred to in the New Testament. James is reckoned to have ministered in Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot, so the story goes, ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, that's the one who has replaced Judas, tradition has him sent to Syria with Andrew and he died a death by burning. And here's the saved one, it's John, the one who writes this gospel before us, the only one of the apostles that have thought to die of a natural death from old age. He was a leader in the church of Ephesus. He took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his home. During Domitian's persecution in the middle 90s, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. By the way, it was a good place to write a book, wasn't it? The Revelation of Jesus Christ. There's some accounts 
Latin accounts that record that he was thrown into boiling oil at Rome, but he escaped with his life. Peter thought he was ready to follow Jesus now. You get the feeling there? He says, I'm going to go with you now. I'll lay down my life. Jesus knows better. He will follow afterwards, as all of them do. But he needed to grow in grace to be prepared for such an event. He needed to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. His failures that will be identified in a greater detail in chapter 18 when we get there, all of these will prove only to take away the hardness and the brashness of who he is and make him just a little bit stronger and flexible at the time of need. Tertullian, the early church father, describes much of this witness of these courageous disciples in their own blood by summarizing the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Back to our text in chapter 13. Peter thinks he's ready to lay down his life. He's not. There will be some more strengthening required. But verse 38 is just a remarkable phrase. Jesus is such a master at this. And, I, and you can catch the tone here with the question mark in English. Will you lay down your life for me? Peter wondered. He, he wanted to follow he wanted to follow Jesus now. Why could he not? Verse 37. Can I not follow you now? Why? Well, he wasn't ready. Often a new convert has great boldness. Wants to jump in the fire without counting the costs, without gaining the experience that is necessary for the difficulty along the way. That's why Paul instructed his protege, Timothy, be careful. Don't lay hands on anybody too quickly. In other words, don't commission them for something of great importance and leadership within the church until they're ready. James would say, don't Many of you become teachers. A lot of folks want to teach. They want to instruct theology. There is a time for it. And it wasn't now with Peter. Why not? There's a great battle going on. Paul describes the real battle that's going on. For us, we think it's just what we can see, but it is much beyond that. The Apostle Paul charges those in the Christian church to put on the full armor of God. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, really. That's not your real enemy. You think it is. You're depressed about it. You're you're worried about these kinds of things, but that's not your real enemy. But against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's the domain of Satan who would rule 
you only get little glimpses of it. This isn't to scare people away, but it is called to sober preparation. You want to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth? Be prepared. You may fail along the way a little, but who you're really wrestling against is the prince of the power of the air. The darkness who would snatch away that good word. Be prepared. Prepare your heart. Jesus asked, will you lay down your life for me? Verse 38. From here, mark that and go to Luke 22. Luke records us a little bit more of what's going on. Which answers this question that I think that Peter doesn't take into account. He's ready to physically lay down his life, sure, in the flesh, but he forgot about the battle in the spirit. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus explains to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon. Now when he says that, you can catch the tone, can't you? Little child, Simon, Simon, listen to what I'm saying. You're thinking about something else. I'm trying to tell you, just as you would tell your little child, don't run out in that street and get crushed by the car. Behold, Verse 31, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan has demanded to have him. Let me try him. Let me afflict him. Let me function like I did with Job. And this Peter who says he would lay down his life, he will deny you. So I'll bring great hardships in his life, great difficulties in his life. And beloved, I would suggest to you that anyone who has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, I don't know whether it's personally Satan would or the demonic world, but the, the evil powers would say, well, let me have them. Let me test them. Let me try them. But Jesus tells Simon in verse 32 the reason for his success. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Now, we won't get into this detail, but you know you've got Judas. He betrays Jesus. And Peter who denies Jesus. There is one difference between the two of them. You see it in the text. Jesus prays for Peter. And the reason, the only reason you haven't denied the faith is because Jesus is mediating for you. That's what it means to pray. It's an intercessor. You have an intercessor in heaven. And as dark and difficult as it might be, look above, look to Christ, beloved. He won't fail because Christ won't allow him to fail. And he promises, and when you have turned again, that is when you have truly repented from the heart. Judas was just 
disgusted at what he had done. It was a superficial repentance. It wasn't a repentance from the heart. Peter's absolutely broken. We'll get into that in, later on in chapter 21 in John. And Jesus knows all of this ahead of time. He says, when you have turned, that is when you have repented, do this, strengthen your brothers. It is a strengthening time for Peter. And he'll use the trials that he went through to do what? To strengthen the others. They will have to be strong. They're all going to be martyred. They will all preach the gospel to all the nations and go out and become the foundation for Christianity across the globe. But it will take men of great courage, great strength, and men that will go to the cross, literally. Satan's desire is destruction. Christ's desire is strength. To allow Peter to recognize his own weakness so that he can be strong in the one that is strong, that is Christ and Christ alone. From here, turn to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has a similar experience in his life, a strengthening experience through suffering. Peter is absolutely humiliated. This is the brash, bold leader who's ready to lay down his life. And you know the story about his denial. Just some simple people that really have no power of authority ask him about his faith and he denies the Lord three times. He's humiliated. He needs to be tempered by truth. Paul, believe it or not, did as well, which I can't imagine. I couldn't imagine a greater Christian than the Apostle Paul. I wish I could truly follow him as he follows Christ. What a great example. In chapter 12 and verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He explains to them, he knows specifically why he has some suffering in his life. He says it's to keep me from being conceited, from being proud. Why? Because the amazing revelations that were given to me, a thorn in the flesh, in the flesh was given, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know exactly what specifically the thorn was. It could have been his loss of his eyesight. You know, he had somebody write for him and then he wrote someone on his own, see what big letters I wrote. We don't know. Or he could be just talking about his suffering and persecution that he got all along the way. We don't know. But we know one thing. It really wasn't the physical thing. It was more than losing whatever. What's the text say? A messenger from whom? Satan. To harass me. Satan desired to sift Paul like wheat as well. Should I say he would desire to sift anyone who professes Christ like wheat? He'd like to destroy you all. But Christ intercedes for him and uses that same suffering to perfect him, to make him stronger, bolder, more courageous. For Paul to live was Christ and to die was gain. How do you make such a person? Well, it takes some time. Some tribulation. 
some testing. To knock away the brittleness to create a strong instrument for the Lord. He said this, in his specific case, he knew why is to keep me from being conceited, being proud. You could imagine somebody getting a theological discussion with Paul about something. And Paul said, well, let's see. When I was in heaven, (laughs) and he really was. He said, well, when I was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, let me show you what I mean. I could imagine it would be great part because if you remember, particularly at the church of Corinth, they were all questioning his apostleship, his authority. Are you kidding me? He had much to boast in. But this broke him. In fact, he pleaded three times, verse 8, for this to go away. But you know what was more important in his life at that time? For Christ's grace to be upon him. And Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is, that is the idea of perfecting. That is the idea of, of making it stronger. Of tempering it. And so, he looks at his weaknesses and says, you know what? I'm glad about it. I am glad about whatever occurs. Oh, sure, it's painful, and sure, he prayed for it to go away, as we should do. I'm not suggesting that at all. But he's strong and glad because he knows Christ has a purpose. It is so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, and then I'm strong. You want the power of Christ to rest on you in a strong way? It would be perfected through weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, to say the least. And it's really not those external things that are the problem. It's the, it's the prince of the power of the air who would like to sift you as wheat. It may cost you some things to follow Christ. And I want to be sober about that. Now, we're not asking people just to come to Christ to, to, join, the, to join the party in that sense. In this life, it'll cost you a great deal. But I might add that the rewards are out of this world. You get more than you ever dreamed of and ever hoped for. You get all the riches of Christ. Not some of them, all of them. John ends this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus knows. He knows right then. It does occur later on. He permits this temptation to Peter, which he knows he will even fail, not to bring about evil in his life, but to purge that which doesn't look like Christ in his life. It is to temper the man of God into an instrument fit for the master's use.
the fire of saying is tempered by in this life is so that the truth and the truth alone remains. Are you ready to follow Christ? Follow him now. He will die, and you cannot be a part of that. His atonement is his alone, and trust in him alone, not your work, but the work of one high priest, Jesus Christ. He will call you to follow, to pick up your cross and follow him, and it it may actually lead to your physical death, but certainly death to self. And the last question is, will you lay down your life? Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, I do pray for myself and your people that we would truly follow Christ. Take away that which does not look like him. And as painful it might be in times, I pray that you encourage your, st- your saints to find their strength in you and you alone, even in times of great weaknesses. For those that are outside of Christ, even now, under the sound of my voice, gather them. Gather them as a father would gather their children together to have and to hold and to keep. Work in their heart to see the glory and love of Christ. And for those of us who have heard the shepherd's call, may we be continually conformed to Christ and trusting you and you alone. Amen. Take a moment, beloved, where you are to think on these things. If you have something to share with Christ in prayer, you may do so right now. Take a moment.